This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement. And my two guests are Tim Baslin and Hall Harris, who um, are partners in crime this semester. <laughs> uh, they have combined uh, to teach um, a course on the fictional writings of Tolkien and Lewis. And uh, um, Tim teaches in our arts, media and arts program here at the seminary, and Hall is a colleague in New Testament studies. And so how could it possibly be that a New Testament guy <laughs> and an arts guy get together and teach a class on uh, on literary works and Tim, I think I'll let you launch us into the tell the story about where uh, this came student from. demand. Student demand. Huh? <laughs> yeah, there was a student in one of Hall's classes where he was mentioning. Were you talking about Tolkien or Lewis? Lewis. Lewis. And he came up to him after class and asked uh, if there would possibility of having a class on that. And uh, Hall mentioned that me, to me in the faculty lounge, and I was like, Yeah, let's do it. That'd be fun. Let's teach one together. And I was half joking and. Then it, it, we started. The ball started rolling. You don't and just kept joke going. with Hall. He takes no. it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> he was very excited to teach something outside of New Testament. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and and Hall, where did your interest in this area come from? I know you're a big. I knew you were a big Lewis fan. I, uh, so where did your interest in all this come from? Well, I've read literature since I was in high school. This is the crazy thing about it. Uh, when I was uh, sophomore and junior in high school, the uh, English department decided they didn't have any more to teach me, so they turned me loose in the library <laughs> during the English class period. And one year, I read through the great books of the Western world. Hmm. You know, all of them, thirty-seven mm -hmm. million words. I forget how much it is. Um, and I really read pretty freely, and I really enjoyed it because I didn't have anybody telling me, you know, you should like Dickens or you shouldn't like Trollope or you whatever. Um, but I went away to college. I thought I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. I decided to come to seminary, and so my fourth year I switched to an English Lit major and finished with a degree in English Lit and a minor in French. But I have been reading Lewis and Tolkien since that time mm -hmm. and over and over and over again. I used to read the Space Trilogy and the Lord of the Rings annually. I've slipped a little on that in the last 10 years. New Testament will do that too. <clears throat> yeah, it kind of has a way to do that. But I've always been engaged with that because it does something to me. I feel like in these imaginary worlds that Lewis and Tolkien have created, I somehow feel find myself more at home than I do in the real world sometimes. Hmm. And, and Tim, where's your interest in all this come from? Uh, we didn't read a lot of books. I didn't read a lot of books growing up, but a very distinct memory I have over and over again is my parents reading me the Chronicles of Narnia. So hmm. us all climbing into their king-size bed in the evening and, and reading and going through them, and that they just opened up my imagination in ways that um, 
I'm, I think maybe I'm only now coming to appreciate. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I returned to those and read them myself, obviously. I had a course in college that was on Lewis uh, that I really enjoyed, and I also did an English major in college and continued that through my PhD and did some literature studies and ultimately focused on Flannery O'Connor, but I've always had interest in literature. Now, now, the obvious transparent question is, what is a course like this doing in a place like this? Um, uh, uh, we're at a seminary. I don't think – I think it would be fair to say – in fact, I'd be willing to bet that I could go through the catalogs of most seminary um, offerings around the country, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a course like this. Um, you might find it in a few places, but not in very many. So, so um, explain for those who are listening uh, as they th- thinking through this. Why in the world would a seminary be engaged in a course on on literary fiction? What is it? What is it designed to do for students? And what kind of reflection are you aiming at? Um, that's a little hard for me to answer because it's just so natural for me. It's what I've studied. All. I did a double major in college, Bible and English, and I continued that through my PhD work. So it's just very, uh, it's just the way that I think. And it's, so it feels to me very natural and like, why wouldn't you have this sort of course? Mm-hmm. But uh, what I find from students is that uh, in a similar way to the way I feel like my imagination was awakened with some of this, these types of readings when I was young, mm-hmm. that students are longing for that. Hmm. Um, uh, so in one way, it, it allows or teaches people how to allow their imagination to be part of their spiritual life mm-hmm. would be one aspect of it. And then I think another one is understanding our culture, understanding how to interact with culture very generally. Um, not just through analysis uh, or reason, but also with the emotions, with viewing art, with seeing movies, and, uh, and actually being affected by them, which is something Lewis talks about a lot. What's your view on it, Hall? Why, why the, the school needs this kind of course? Well, I started from a somewhat different place. I used to, I've taught Philippians for years in one of our required courses, and I would get to that point in Philippians 4 where Paul would talk about if there's anything worthy, think about these things. Mm-hmm. And I always used to use Lewis's imaginary works and Tolkien's fictional worlds as an example of things that were worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. and. One of the I really became convinced, and I still am, though I've had to broaden my views out thanks to my colleague, <laughs> that this actually applies perhaps to all literature and not just the fictional works of Christian authors like Lewis and Tolkien. But mm-hmm. I really feel like when you go into this fictional reality that they've created, you see moral and ethical choices in relief in a way that they stand out and jump at you in ways that in all of our complex modern world with all its different shades of gray and uncertainty, we don't see the clarity of the difference between good and evil, for example. Mm -hmm. And when you go into Lord of the Rings or when you go into Narnia or when you go to Mars, Malacandra, with Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, you suddenly see stuff for what it really is. And when you watch other people in the – you watch the characters making choices between good and evil, whose side am I on? Mm -hmm. Who am I willing to die for? 
you come away from that and back into our real world with an enhanced capability to make those discernments, those choices. And so you come away a, a more ethical, better person as a result. Now I've since come to think, thanks to Tim, um, that this actually applies in some greater or lesser degree to virtually all of literature in the sense that literature forces us outside of ourself and even in literature that we might look at and consider morally questionable or in some cases even morally reprehensible, we actually learn something by negative example about how not to do this. Because we still see choices because and we, dilemmas yes, and tensions and all that kind absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. Yes. And so I think it's actually a huge part of character development and moral and ethical formation. And if there's one thing that people training for ministry in a theological school really need to think about in this present day and age, mm -hmm. it's moral and ethical choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think an enormous part of that is empathy, mm -hmm. not just seeing moral choices mm -hmm. and negative examples and positive examples, but walking in someone else's shoes and really understanding where they're coming from and training ourselves to actually listen mm -hmm. and to hear well rather mm -hmm. than just speak. Yeah, but you're all over a value we constantly talk about in here, which mm -hmm. is, um, my, my remark goes, uh, one of the first rules of cultural engagement is to um, put on, uh, is to get a spiritual GPS on where someone's coming from, which means you listen and you shut off your truth meter for, for a while and just, just listen to what it is the person is saying, what motivates yeah. them, uh, why they are the way they are, where their influences are coming from, et cetera, and the, and, and the goal is, is really to get to know them uh, and, um, and to get to know them in a way that, that's healthy and, and that allows you to have and wrestle with um, where can I connect with, with where this person's coming from, that kind yeah. of thing. Lewis has an incredible quote, and maybe Hall can remember it more precisely than I can. <laughs> he has that ability a little better than uh -huh. I do about um, it does no good to basically to critique literature mm -hmm. from the beginning until you've given yourself to it mm -hmm. and allowed it to have its emotional effect on you. Mm -hmm. Uh, until you've allowed it that power, mm -hmm. um, y there's no point in critiquing it because mm -hmm. it hasn't. You have not allowed it to be what it's supposed to be and to do what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. So you've got this course on. Well, uh, there's one other question I do want to ask uh, before we uh, before we go into the particulars, and uh, let me do it now. Uh, w another value that we've talked about, besides the value of listening and engagement, is. Um, is a value that I would call an embrace of kind of truth and beauty, and and we might add reflection in the midst of all that. Um, and I think it's an undervalued uh, um, value, if I can. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and I heard you evoke the idea of imagination, so I think this is an interesting combination. Um, uh, so talk a little bit about about uh, the goal of opening up the imagination that you feel like these works do. Do you think they work in part because they not only do they take you out of yourself, but in some cases they put you in a different place, a different location, mm -hmm. and you ha and you find yourself trying to get oriented to start off with, mm -hmm. and in that process. Yeah, in the process of being dislocated, you actually have the opportunity to get located, if I can say it that way. Yeah, yeah. So like Brueggemann talks about mm -hmm. orientation, disorientation, mm -hmm. reorientation, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I, there's different ways to define and understand, obviously, what beauty is and how it works. Mm 
Uh, so a, a more traditional model may be that God is beautiful, mm-hmm. and so beauty um, is static might not be quite the right word, but you can define it according to God's characteristic. Mm -hmm. And then we can see reflections of that and we can notice reflections of that. Um, The Old Testament actually doesn't use the word beauty very Mm -hmm. much Mm -hmm. at all. Um, It uses the word glory a lot Mm -hmm. and in referring to things that we might call beautiful. And Bill Dearness has done some good work. Uh, He was on my dissertation committee. He's done some really incredible work in looking at beauty in the Old Testament and talking – when he talks about beauty, the way he defines it is – the way he says the Bible defines it is beauty is that which is fitting. So it is that which is um, in correct relation to God's purposes in the world. So it's not this objective – it's objective in the sense that it, it is true and it's objectively true I mean, in it God. exists. Right. Yeah. But it's not uh, – so a person is simply beautiful. Right. Well, or a thing is simply beautiful. You can take something that one person considers beautiful and you can use it to very terrible purposes. Mm-hmm. So it is beautiful when it is being used correctly mm-hmm. or when it is in relation to God in the right way. Mm-hmm. And I think talking about the imagination, what literature can do for us is it can reimagine what is beautiful. It can reimagine, it can take our understandings that may have holes and flaws in them, and it can give us a different perspective that we see as more fitting into God's purposes in the world that we couldn't see from where we were at from our original perspective. So kind of in shaking up the the box, if you will, um, you, you're almost forced to think through what configuration might uh, might make some kind of sense, or in some works it's so disheveled that you go, um, there is no way, good way to put this together, but it may make sense out of something else that's going on in your life that, that helps you to, to appreciate uh, Things may be better than they seem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think of some of the movies that are very, very popular today, which are about uh, the, uh, the Mockingjay movies. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about in particular, where where the game, the the reality show, is so out of whack, mm-hmm. if I can say it that way, um, that you're you're forced you're forced to think through what kind of a what kind of a moral world is that. And then, what kind of a moral world should we think about about living in? And then, the, of course, part of the point of the movie is the way in which uh, a virtue, uh, you know, shines through even in the midst of that kind of um, disorienting environment, uh, if I can say it that way. Um, uh, is that part of what we're looking at here? Is this kind of uh, um, uh, reshuffling of the deck, if 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 you will, or or, or something like that? I, th- I think we we going into every class we have some sort of purpose in re- reshuffling our students' deck, right? <laughs> yeah, we call it messing with their minds. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is a healthy messing of the minds. You aren't just messing with minds to mess with minds. It has a point to it, doesn't it, Hall? Oh, absolutely. And I think um, before we get too far off the topic of beauty, I mm-hmm. I, I kind of wanted to throw in there's also this tension between internal and external 
it fits with a major New Testament theme mm-hmm. that you and I would know as the great reversal of values. Right. That you know what, from a human standpoint, looks to be outstanding and perfect and desirable, from God's standard, it's only useful for paving material. It's mm-hmm. just worth trampling underfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that when you look at beauty, there's inner beauty and there's external beauty, and we often focus only on the latter. Mm-hmm. We focus on what we can see with our eyes and what meets our senses, but there's a an inner beauty of character mm-hmm. that somebody can exhibit as a human being who might actually on the outside be a disabled person, a dis- disfigured person, even a very grotesque person, mm-hmm. but there's this inner radiance of character that comes through. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. the quote I always keep going back to is one from uh, one of the most famous aviation writers of the 20th century, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who's famous for The Little Prince. It's mm-hmm. been translated in all over. Um, it is only with the heart that one can see rightly the essential is invisible to the eye. Hmm. And that really says a lot, and you may want to comment on this inner versus outer, because I know it concerns some of your and it actually, it actually, I do have one trend I want to pick up now, which is it does actually show why it is that sometimes the most, um, how can I say this, the most honorable kind of character, the most outstanding type of character emerges in the midst of oftentimes the most horrible of circumstances. In other words, that um, that the external situation that we find ourselves in may be terrifically horrible in many ways, and yet uh, the person who stands out in the midst of that stands out in part because the contrast then becomes so great. Yes. Yeah. And that's often a questioning of, I think, I see those things as a questioning of what it is that we consider to be good and bad and mm-hmm. to be beautiful or not beautiful. Mm-hmm. So why is it that we, when we see a disabled person, we have these um, standards of, of beauty that mm-hmm. we apply? And we, we apply them, you know, kind of randomly mm-hmm. uh, according to the way our culture has shaped us and the way that we understand the world. So some disabilities, like we're, we're all wearing glasses here, mm-hmm. and people don't necessarily find glasses ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some teenage kids that are kind of interested <laughs> in getting glasses that are, uh-huh. that, that are not even for use. That, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> just it's just a aesthetics. cool factor, yeah. the aesthetics yeah. of looking at them. So, uh, what is it that we're looking at and calling beautiful or not calling beautiful? What standards are we bringing that are wrong and need to be challenged and need to be questioned? Hmm. Hmm. So, um, so let's talk. Let, let's dive in a little bit into the course and and how how it works. Um, how, how have you all built? The semester and how are you getting at these kinds of issues through these writings? What's what's the general outline of of how you're going about this? I mean, I know you're in the midst of it, so um, easy to difficult. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, that's so, true. Oh, so, the arrangement of the works. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. We we've started with um, Lewis, who Tolkien accused of being more allegorical. Uh huh. Uh, not fair. <laughs> not fair. Uh, maybe, but I mean, he, he probably is more allegorical than than Tolkien is. Anyway, um, he certainly can be seen that way. Um, that's stuff that our our theology students can connect really well with. Uh-huh. So when we read stuff from the Chronicles of Narnia, where there's easy parallels to the uh-huh. Christian story, uh, and then we move through and move them more into 
Lewis's and Tolkien's definition of myth mm-hmm. and the significance of myth, mm-hmm. and then go all the way to Lewis's most difficult work, which we had a little argument about whether or not to include, <laughs> which is uh, probably Till We Have Faces. Mm. Uh, which, which you won. All, all <laughs> right. uh, that's probably not to be sorted out in public. But anyway. Uh, so I don't mind. I'll make a comment on this. <laughs> yeah. it, I, I've read it several times. And I uh, let me say up front, and in all fairness, it never did much for me. Mm-hmm. And I was never one of its greatest fans. Lewis, in some of his correspondence, put that one in Perilandra as the two most favorite books of his that he ever wrote. And he Mm -hmm. thought technically as a novel it was the best thing he ever wrote. Mm -hmm. But it's not an easy work to get into. And I had problems with it that were pretty much my own making because I um, tend to be a little bit of an engineer by trade, and I tend to like to look at life as an engineering problem to be solved. And there is a character, <laughs> until we have faces, who takes a very similar approach to life. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that character very much because it was too close to home. Oh, Let's just you were looking say, in the mirror and didn't like it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm going to have to confess on that one. Yeah. So I've kind of revised my view on this and said, yes, I'll acknowledge this is an important work and it needs to be studied in detail because of what it tells us about who we are hmm. and, and how we respond to other people. And I fought for it pre- precisely for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I know that we have students, uh, a lot of students who would uh, need that same sort of prodding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that helped all out. <laughs> uh, so, so, and I, and so I take it that, that the goal is not just to analyze these works and talk about it, but to really engage in a semester in which student does something they probably don't get a chance to do very often in seminary, at least in this kind of way, and that is to be led into a kind of self-reflection that normally they might not get if they were you know, in a systematic theology class or debating philosophy or debating historical criticism or whatever. Is that, is that part, of the, part of the point of the exercise? Yes, certainly. Yeah. And so we have them uh, posting online before class and interacting with one another and creating a lot of conversation. And our whole class is pretty much conversation about the stuff rather than us being the sages on the stage and telling them everything. So your class time is even handled a little bit differently than most normal class. We'll have to talk about that on the other side of the break. That's an interesting uh, observation from a pedagogical standpoint, and for those of us who who teach in a variety of settings, that might be good. So uh, let's talk about which works um, dispose themselves to this discussion first, Hall, and and then talk about what kinds of things are you getting the students to reflect on as they read. Well, last week we had students read side-by-side Lewis's The Abolition of Man, which is a kind of a philosophical text on education theory where Lewis argues real strongly for an objective reality outside ourselves uh, and compare that to Lewis's The Great Divorce, which is a he subtitles a dream, which is a picture of people making choices, choosing self or choosing others, whether to 
stay in heaven or go back to hell. Um, all imaginary. Mm-hmm. Um, this week we're talking about Lewis's work in experiment and criticism, which is perhaps in some ways maybe one of the more technical things we do, um, where Lewis is arguing that rather than have people told what they should or shouldn't like, they should learn how to read. Uh, and really engage the literature and immerse themselves in it and learn how to receive rather than to simply comment on. And so it's, a, it's really important. We're going to move on from that to talk about Tolkien's. It was originally the Andrew Lang Lectures and then published as On Fairy Stories, where Tolkien talks about creating imaginary worlds and our role as human beings, as sub-creators under God the Creator, where we use our imaginative, inventive capability to come up with these imaginary worlds that people can visit. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Now, um, uh, Tim, as you look at this, what are you hoping to students get out of this particular section on literary theory? Um, well, in the in the beginning of uh, an experiment in criticism, Lewis is talking about the difference, not just talking about good literature versus bad literature. He tries to change the conversation mm-hmm. and instead talk about reading well or not reading well. And he talks about people who don't read well one example is they don't read things twice mm-hmm. because as soon as they figure out they've read it before, they're done with it. Mm-hmm. They've used it. Uh, it's already had its purpose. And he talks about reading well. I mean, imagine going to a family reunion and then you're invited back the next year or five years down the road or whatever. And, no, I've done that before. I'm, I'm, I'm finished with it, right? Mm-hmm. That's not doesn't make for good relationship. It doesn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's other things to be discovered and learned and to to grow from it. So he's calling people into a, a, a again a listening a listening well and sitting with something and taking time. If you have a favorite spot outdoors on your back porch or at a park or whatever, you don't want to just go there once and then you've got it and you figured it out. It's something that washes over you and you allow it to affect who you are. So again, it's about listening well, um, and not simply using what we what we read for our own purposes, and then tossing it and being done with it. Now, obviously, we're thinking about a kind of reading that is different, perhaps, than the way a lot of people use their their reading. Most people they either read for information, or they read for what they might call leisure, which is just to experience a story or whatever. But it's still kind of at a 
almost escapist. At distance, yes. Yeah. And, and that's not what you're talking about, no. right? No. You, so, so okay, those are two of the ways most people read. So, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, what kind of an experience are you inviting students to? to and those are the to? those are the examples mm -hmm. that Lewis brings up as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as that he is arguing against. Mm -hmm. um, you want to speak into that, Hall? Well, <clears throat> I'll try to be brief. Um, <laughs> I think there's it's a kind of immersive reading that where we, in a sense, give up ourselves and die to ourselves, but I don't mean in a spiritual Christian dying to self-sense, but it's a lot further than simply what Coleridge famously called the willing suspension of disbelief, that everybody who works with literature and narrative has thrown that phrase around. Mm -hmm. it, it's deeper than that. It's beyond that. And I'm going to read one stanza of a poem I wrote this weekend that mm -hmm. describes my own experience okay. about this, because I think it says it better than I can say it any other way. The poem was called Literary Immersion, and this is the first stanza. Sinking in a sea of words, down in the darkened depths of a literary sea, I plunge beneath the surface meaning gasping as I go, choking for air, fighting for light, longing for, it, for life itself within existing memory or no, dying to myself. As I lose myself in words I neither spoke nor wrote, and yet in dying I am altered, changed within, enlarged, made greater than I was before. I think you can hear in that mm -hmm. Hall has an, an immense ability to reason, mm -hmm. and there's a there's somewhat he's fighting that, and that almost <laughs> he's reasoning as he's drowning. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> Only a lifeline, yeah. folks. The need to reason is the yeah. drowning. Right, almost. right, right. That's right. To, to try to figure it out right. before it even starts. Yes, and it, it's the learning to give yourself over, mm -hmm. as Lewis talks about, give yourself over to the work and allow it to affect you and allow it to to do its work on you. No, it's interesting because as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about there's an entire genre of stuff that is actually very popular today. The whole realm of science fiction and futurism and all that all that kind of stuff, which I have to confess, I for the most part do not connect to. I don't either. <laughs> oh, I do. Don't get me started. <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, I, I watch this and, and and I and and particularly people's fascination with it a lot of times, and I go, I just can't connect to that. <laughs> I mean, there's no, and yet, in one sense, it's in an exaggerated kind of way. I think um, it it it's designed to be this disorienting but yet orienting experience that that I think your poem is 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 shooting after. Is that is that part of what we're we're talking about here, uh, I'm going to say it this way, allowing yourself to get disoriented so that you have the chance of getting reoriented at the same time? Yeah, I think that's true, but it's reor reoriented within the universe you've entered in this literary work, mm -hmm. and you have to be careful about that because obviously if we're talking about imaginative Christian literature like Lewis and Tolkien wrote, you're in fairly safe territory most of the time. Exactly. You can be very you're, deeply you're going challenged. You're right down the track I'm, I'm yeah, wrestling with. But obviously there's some what are considered great classic literature in the history of the Western world that frankly can get a little scary if you completely immerse yourself in, and I think you need to keep that in mind. It's uh, 
reminds me of Strabo the geographer commenting on the ancient city of Corinth once said, not for everyone is the voyage to Corinth. That's right. <laughs> In other words, uh, as uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Luke Skywalker going into the Mos Eisley Cantina, this place can be a little rough. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and, and I, think, I think what I'm hearing here is there are actually two experiences that you kind of, and maybe this is a reflection of the poem as well, Hall, it, on the one hand you've got the immersion, which is allowing yourself into this world that may operate in different ways and in different rules to see what a reconfiguration can look like. But there also still is the critical part of the person who goes through that experience, who in the midst of going there also has to also kind of step back and assess what's happening at the same time. Is is that an interplay that we're also talking about? It is, but I wonder, because if you're not careful, you can find yourself doing all assessing and not much listening. Mm -hmm. You can end up being critical of the universe you're going into, maybe because it raises red flags about your theology of so you predestination. So you put your toe in the water, but say. you don't actually dive in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm thinking that maybe the reflection comes more on the way back out as you're thinking about it after you've been there, but not so much while you're actually in the experience. So, uh, so rather than thinking about it as a dialectic exercise in which the mm -hmm. two things are happening simultaneously, although I'm not sure we can totally shut that off. Um, it's more a um, it, it, it's more a dive in and then step get immersed and then step back operation. Tim, are you, is that how you see, it or will you wrestle with it differently? Uh, yeah, I think I wrestle with I'm it. I'm looking a at his look, and I'm going, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I know. This is the, um, the first time this has it, happened. It feels to me like the what y'all are describing is still a very rational kind of okay when when does my rational part get to be able to to judge and tell it what to do uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to suggest we need to take the rational out of it of course I'm not suggesting that at all uh, let me see if I can put this in a different way um, I think there's certainly danger in literature but for me the real danger is when we read it as escapism mm -hmm. because literature does work on us mm -hmm. it simply does and when you read it as escapism, you will, you don't recognize that it's doing work you, on you. You pretend that something's not going on that mm -hmm. is. Exactly. Yeah. So if you approach it as only entertainment mm -hmm. to a movie or whatever you go to, mm -hmm. then it does its work on you and it affects you, but you don't. You're just changed and you don't know why or anything like that. Um, I think there's a deeper way of learning how to engage cultural objects, how to engage, how to recognize. Um, the image of God in the world, mm -hmm. how to listen for the Spirit being at work in the world in, in a variety of places, um, and to be in touch with that, and to listen to the Spirit and to allow our the Spirit in us to recognize, as Paul does at the Areopagus, in Him we live and move and have our being. That's not a Christian writing those words, and yet Paul recognizes it and says, yes, this is true, mm -hmm. and he points it out and calls it what it is. And then, so here's another example, maybe. Um, there's a difference in going to a bar just for entertainment mm -hmm. and, and not realizing the effects that that's having on you. 
and going to actually engage people mm-hmm. and engage the music that is there and really listen to a person. So I'm there to have the drink rather than to actually get to know the people sitting next to me. Right. Yeah. And you can we we tend we approach relationships that way. Mm-hmm. We use other people mm-hmm. for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, how to win friends and influence people is that the name of the book? Yeah. I mean yeah. it's it's basically be generous to people, but. Really, your idea is that you're trying to get something, right? Right. And, and it's an exchange kind of model as opposed to a, a generosity of spirit, uh, which is requires a lot of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I think literature requires a lot of vulnerability, but the payoff is so much more great. And and so the goal here is to really get the student to. Um, uh, you guys have used the picture of immersion. You use the picture of drowning to <laughs> illustrate it. Yeah. Uh, um, it. Is to really get a student to open themselves up to to the to the place the author is trying to take them in many ways. Is that is that be a fair way to characterize what you're after? I would say that's part of it. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What yeah, what comes with it? For me, there's a large element of the spirit at work in the world mm-hmm. and recognizing God at work in the world. Mm-hmm. And by that, I'm going to tease this out a little bit, by that you mean um, in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of directions, right? And it, by I think part of what I'm pushing back against a little bit is that it's not just about authorial intent. right? So I can't say, oh, this person is not a Christian or this person believes something is a Christian but you know believes a very different way than I do, therefore mm-hmm. what they write is no good mm-hmm. and I can't listen to it. Right, right. Um, sometimes what I – the way I like to get at this is, is the suggestion that sometimes when we talk about culture or, or the messages that culture sends us, we tend to take it through a, a good and a bad filter, if right. I can say it that mm-hmm. way. Um, and and not only do we take it through a good and bad filter, but we tend to be really, really sensitive to when it's bad mm-hmm. and notice that and tend to pay very little, if any, attention <laughs> to when it's good yeah. so that, so that the, the culture meter has a tilt button and the tilt button is all right. aligned to be really, really sensitive to one direction of that. And my guess is, is that part of what I'm hearing is, is that you're teaching students to listen more carefully and more sensitively to what's written for the mix that's in that's in the materials and that yeah. oftentimes there is a good coming through it or a wrestling coming through it or a, 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 a really good articulation of attention coming through it that is a good part of of being engaged with life yeah let, let me uh, give another example of okay. something that's uh, I, that we're trying to do that's okay. really good, I think. Uh, we tend to reduce the meaning down mm-hmm. to good and bad, right? and we tend to, re- to reduce it down to moral choices. Mm-hmm. And part of what we're after is something closer to spiritual formation, mm-hmm. that, that students, um, when you submit yourself to a work, it forms you and it creates habits inside of you that allow you to become that way. Um, more than just changing your mind and your understanding of the facts about it so that when you're in a situation you can choose it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of situations we're in where we simply act and we simply do. And we spend a lot of time forming people's minds, especially at a seminary, Mm -hmm. right? And then they get out and they're in situations where their mind doesn't have time to react. Mm -hmm. Or like Paul in Romans 7, the things that I don't want to do I end up doing 
that's just part of our human nature and who we are. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have habits in our lives that form our heart's desire, this is something that largely comes from uh, James Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom, mm-hmm. um, that, that form us. And I think literature can do that. Reading good literature can give us those experiences that are more than just a do this, don't do that kind of explanation. And this is the parables too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, part of what part of what I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you is is that there is uh, one, and this is another thing that we say regularly on these podcasts is is that life in a fallen world is a life lived in tension. There are things yeah. that are coming in collision with one another, and sometimes there are good values that are in collision with one another because of the circumstances that surround it. It strikes me that good literature and good art um, exposes that. Yes. Yeah. And, and in the midst of exposing that, it forces you to recognize – I just don't have a, a singular level choice here. There's a depth to the situation and circumstance that I find myself in that puts me, in some cases, in a very uncomfortable position because I'm not quite sure which way to go. There's a tug. And and good literature helps you wrestle with that, even even beyond the resolution that might happen within the story by Mm -hmm. just taking you on that trip, if I can say it that way. And there's not necessarily always a, a right or wrong That's answer. That's right. There's not a resolution. Or the, the exact way that you – like if I was in that situation, that I would have reacted that way. That's but I right. can understand why that person that was in that situation did react that way. That's right. And I come to understand them better and to know and to listen. And better. that's part of what you are talking about when earlier you are talking about empathy, is right. that creating mm-hmm. an empathy and an understanding for for why people end up in certain circumstances that they do and how why they react in certain ways that they do. So I take it there's a lot of – you say there's a lot of conversation. I, my guess is is that a lot of the conversation is going into this direction of, of what the literature is is doing for people and the way, the way they are reflecting and almost getting them to think about a different way of reflection. Is that – is that fair? Oh, I think very much fair. Yeah. I think that's very much what we're after because we even label a lot of the writing we have people doing as theological reflection because we're wanting them to listen, to look, and to learn how to receive rather than to critically analyze, oh, I think this point is wrong here or that point is wrong over there. Um, the, there's a place for that. But it short circuits the process if you come at the front end to a piece of literature only with the idea of judging, say, its orthodox or non-orthodox theology. This is so fascinating because, I again, I'm back to something that I say regularly in, in doing all the cultural engagement pieces that we do, and you're meeting someone and you're interacting with them initially, and I, I not only do you supposed to get a good GPS on them, but I make the point alongside of it and shut off your truth meter at the same time. Yeah. In other words, and, and the point that I'm trying to get at here is, is that Sometimes when we enter into conversation, we're interacting with people, we're interacting with ideas, our tendency is to say, all right, where is this in the truth meter and what should my reaction be in light of that? And in the process, it creates static, if I can say it that way, for actually hearing what may be going on with the person and and why they're oriented the way I, the, the example I love to use is of my grandmother-in-law. My grandmother-in-law grew up in a home in which her father was supposedly to be this very devout Christian, but everything that he did in life ran against that. 
and he was he was a he was the classic Christian hypocrite. Mm. She wanted nothing to do with the church when she grew up. Why? Because that was the model that she had mm -hmm. that she reacted. Yep. Now I say to people, that's actually a very important piece of information for me to have about my grandmother-in-law, mm. you know, and how how mm -hmm. how I w was to relate to her. Um, and and if I didn't know that and didn't know how to react to that, I you know I I might simply say, well, she's just she just hates the church. Mm. You know, well, wait a minute. You know, there's something that's gone on in her life that's that has um, shoved her in that direction that is actually very important to be aware of. And I think literature can do this kind of thing for us as yeah. well. Having your truth meter on high alert is a, also a very uh, a great lack of humility. Mm -hmm. Uh, my theology is broken. It's fallen. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not perfect in my theology, and if I go around always starting with that, I never have the ability to hear and listen to someone else and and receive have, correction, right? Genuine and, correction, and hear God speaking to me. Mm -hmm. God speaks in the Old Testament outside of the Hebrew people. Mm -hmm. Speaks from other sources, and they from have animals. to learn to listen. Right? Balaam's donkey. Yeah. So, uh, so it, it, I'm, we're rapidly, sadly, running out of time. Uh, I, but it strikes me that this is a very good exercise and a very kind of. It seems like a backdoor way to come at spiritual formation, but when you talk about it, it actually sounds like a very front door way mm -hmm. to come at spiritual formation, uh, <laughs> in a way that we don't think about. Uh, often, but that can open us up for possibilities. And so my guess is, is that you guys are thinking about not just using Tolkien and, and Lewis to do this, but that there's probably sequels coming. Uh, <laughs> am, am, I, am I reading that right? We're only three weeks in, so we'll, we're seeing how it goes. We may, right. this, so far, we may just do this one again. It's been really lovely. Hmm. Oh, I think we'll have to do this one again, but I'm thinking in bigger terms further along. <laughs> yeah. There's so much to learn out there. This is a complex world. Mm -hmm. I already do this in other classes. I take students to Sundance. I, I, yes. I have a theology and literature class, and mm -hmm. so... <laughs> this is why we have you on campus. This is great, um, and uh, because it does add, I think, a dimension of reflection that we tend not to engage in. And frankly, uh, it can take people who may who may not have initially deep, um, particularly spiritual interests, but who are exposed to culture. It's a whole avenue of conversation for possibility mm -hmm. of going to some very fruitful places uh, without it being. Um, Transparent. That's where you're going, if I can say it that way, and 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 actually end up being very beneficial in the process. Yeah. Well, one of the comments we've had from multiple students is, I've kept my literature, which I love reading, separate from my theology. Mm -hmm. And the question is, why? That's right. You you want to be sure those two things come together and to and come together powerfully. Well, uh, this I feel like you talked about drowning, but I feel like we just put our toe in the water uh, <laughs> and just got started with this conversation. But it's an interesting one. It's one that I think Christians tend not to uh, not to engage in very often, and and yet it can be very very useful. So I thank you all for giving us kind of a initial preview into what you're doing and the way this works in the arts and and hopefully the conversation's been helpful to our listeners. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.